Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hi listeners and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the cross-continental film review podcast with me Dan, daydreaming on an hour and 20 minute commute to work on a tram in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, cursing the plague of cyclists in Cambridge, UK. (laughs) In this podcast we discuss films of the fantastical nature, horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because once you've tasted vintage blood of an alien out of a 12th century silver goblet you never go back conrad (laughs) wow (laughs) (laughs) the finer things in life (laughs) indeed (laughs) how are you today i'm very well slightly melting here because it's summertime it has arrived yuck (laughs) <laughs> How about you? Oh, opposite, actually. Uh, sitting here in a scarf with a heater on. Uh, <laughs> recently just moved uh, as well. So, And this house is a lot bigger and uh, so not as much heat retention as uh, our older house. But uh, it's nice and it's just, yes. just me and my wife. And you've got your own recording studio. Yes, I do, I do. I've I've got a whole bunch of moving blankets just draped over things <laughs> at the moment. But it seems to be doing doing okay, so we'll see how this turns out. Yeah. Listeners, let me know. No, it's it's great that you have your own room because listeners will not know this, but sometimes when we have guests, you have to record at ridiculous times of day. And unfortunately, because you were recording in your bedroom... Uh, that meant that your lovely and very patient wife had to vacate the bedroom at ridiculous times, yeah. which is really not not fair. No, so. no, she has been very, very accommodating, uh, but I think she's incredibly grateful now that I have my own space that I can record <laughs> at all times of night uh, without disturbing her, and she can go to bed in peace and sleep. Yes, and have a lion on a Sunday, which should be every human being's right on this planet, quite frankly. Yes, 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 (laughs) indeed. So, Conrad, what are we going to be doing today? Well, I'd better go over to the Oubliette and find out. Mm. Okay, let's just get that lid open. Wow. It's really hot and steamy in here today. Why is everything on fire? There's a princess with a foot missing. Oh, gross. (laughs) Yikes, something's coming. I'm just grabbing this one and going. Quickly. I am the sorcerer you seek. Barely got away that time. Yeah, got pretty heated for a minute. (laughs) Yeah. So, I have in my hands... Dragon Slayer. Ooh, suggested by our listener Chad Rommel. Yes, a 1981 American fantasy film directed by Matthew Robbins and a co-production between Paramount Pictures and Walt Disney Productions. Oh. Starring Peter McNichol, Caitlin Clark, Ralph Richardson, John Hallam and Peter Eyre. 
or Aya. I'm not sure. (laughs) So this is not the uh, 2011 skateboarding documentary. (laughs) No. Although, how many times did I come across that movie when I was trying to research this one? (laughs) Me too. Me too. Yes. So sorry if we have suddenly picked up a huge audience of skateboarding fans. (laughs) This isn't the episode for you. (laughs) So what is this film about? So this film is all about a non-specific European 6th century kingdom being terrorised by a 400-year-old dragon named Vermithrax Pejorative. That's right. Pejorative, even his name is offensive. To keep the dragon's village incineration urges at bay, the cowardly king offers its sacrifices of virgin girls, chosen by lottery every equinox. Perhaps this might have worked on Daenerys Targaryen. Who knows? A young man named Valerian leads an expedition from his village to find the last sorcerer, Ulrich, to ask him to defeat the dragon. But unbeknownst to Valerian, the sceptical king has sent his captain of the guard, Tyrion, to test the sorcerer's magical powers and, unfortunately, stabs him to death in the process. So instead, the sorcerer's plucky apprentice, Galen, decides to take his master's place and sets out to defeat the dragon in a lavish Disney adventure that includes discovering interesting things about Valerian whilst skinny dipping, a princess with a keen sense of social justice, and resurrected wizards who can explode via remote control necklaces. (laughs) I do have to mention I'm still not up to date with Game of Thrones, but uh, it does sound very Game of Thrones-y with uh, Valerian and (laughs) Turian. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Lots to look forward to. We'll be right back. And we're back reviewing Disney's Dragon Slayer 1981 fantasy adventure. Dan, had you seen this movie before? Uh, No, I hadn't. But I did want to point out one uh, thing that I noticed. Mm. Previously, we have covered In the Mouth of Magnus, uh, starring Sam Neill. And in that film, I think I cut it out of the episode, but you mentioned that there was the actor Wilhelm von Homburg in that film who played Vigo from Ghostbusters 2. Yes. It was interesting, in this movie, we have Peter McNichol, who also was in (laughs) Ghostbusters 2, playing Dr. Janusz Pohar. So I thought that was kind of a a nice, interesting um, sort of tie-in between those two movies. Yeah, he's kind of a snivelling... What's the name of that hunchbacked sidekick for evil people? Igor. Igor, yeah. (laughs) He's kind of a snivelling Igor character for the evil Baron, isn't he, in that movie? In Ghostbusters 2, yes. He's a a bit Weasley. He's got that very uh, nondescript Eastern European (laughs) accent. Yeah. (laughs) And yet, interestingly, he's not ashamed of Ghostbusters 2, but Dragon Slayer, apparently Peter McNichol, who plays Galen, the lead character, our hero, 
is ashamed of Dragon Slayer and never includes it on his CV. Oh, right. Because this is his theatrical debut, right? It is. It's his first movie, but it emerged during Disney's dark phase, which is an interesting period that I find quite fascinating. So Disney, post Jaws and Star Wars and the emergence of blockbuster movie making, high concept films that would dominate the summer and take in hundreds of millions of dollars, was really struggling to get bums on seats. Its animated films were doing okay, The Rescuers and so on. They did okay. Uh But its live-action movies were sort of stuck in family-friendly fare starring Jodie Foster and Kurt Russell, you know, Freaky Friday, that kind of thing. But they hadn't really had a hit the size of Mary Poppins, which was the 60s, for quite some time. And their attempt at it during the 70s was Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which I really liked. Me too. Yeah, I love that movie. I, I loved it as a kid. Yeah. I loved the scene underwater with the, yeah. <laughs> the beads floating yeah. around and stuff. <laughs> the beautiful great. briny sea. I love that. Yeah. But it wasn't a Mary Poppins-sized hit. So they were looking at Star Wars, which they turned down when it was offered to them by George Lucas, and then it went on to become huge. And Yeah. So they sort of had a big rethink. And under the leadership of Ron Miller, who ran the company from 78 to 84, they started experimenting to expand their audience to older kids. They started doing darker stuff. So you have things like The Black Hole in 1979 as a live action movie, Watcher in the Woods and Something Wicked This Way Comes and Tron, which was hugely experimental. None of them were a success. All of them were dismal failures. But I I think the changes that Ron Miller sort of started to put into place did eventually reap rewards. I think what they ended up doing was launching a sister studio called Touchstone, and their first movie was Splash, the Daryl Hannah, Tom Hanks romantic comedy with a fantasy element, which had some very adult things and it had nudity, it had a romantic sexual relationship and lots of dirty gags from John Candy. And But that thing was a massive hit. So they needed to separate these activities. I think they needed different brands, but they hadn't figured that out yet. So this movie, Dragon Slayer, fits into that period where Disney was really struggling to figure out how to expand its audience when it had this squeaky clean, all of our films are G-rated right. reputation. And I actually find that period period of Disney really fascinating. There are a number of films uh-huh. from this period in the Oubliette, and I'm hoping that we get to do quite a few of them. Yeah, definitely keen. Uh, I mean, I wasn't sure what the audience was. Mm. Like, what was the demographic it was aiming for? Because it wasn't a Pirates of the Caribbean. It wasn't a swashbuckling adventure to slay a dragon and meet a whole bunch of interesting and quirky characters along the way. It was very bleak mm. from the very beginning. I mean, in the first 15 minutes, the character that you're introduced to, this kind of lovable, wise wizard, is killed. Yes. And you're left (laughs) with a really uh, petulant, arrogant, naive, annoying Mm. character who has to drive the rest of the film 
And it, I don't know. I felt like he was the most unlikable part of the film to me. <laughs> I'm really glad you said that because I don't like him either. I've always found Peter McNichol to be very good at playing spiky characters that you're not really all that comfortable with. I'm sure he's a lovely guy in real life. Yes. But the fact that that Ghostbusters 2 character is a snivelling, irritating toad that pisses off Sigourney Weaver for the whole movie... <laughs> Yeah, he nails that. He's great at that. Being a romantic, heroic lead, not so much. <laughs> yeah. There were quite a lot of similarities between this movie and Lady Hawk. Right. So, kind of similar characters as well, except at least Matthew Broderick had some sort of sense of charm and sort of charisma and, and the fact that he was a thief and he, and he there was character development you know he changed his ways he became more noble and courageous whereas Galen was just an arrogant twat throughout <laughs> the entire movie and then total spoilers here he doesn't really even save the day no really no i mean the wizard does yeah yeah (laughs) i mean to sum up the whole arc of the movie in the first five minutes of the podcast (laughs) the wizard doesn't actually die he just realizes that it's quite a long trip Mm. and his legs probably aren't up to it so he decides to be killed so that his ashes can be stuffed in a bag so that his man about house can take them instead uh-huh. and then just tip them into a pool of fire or something and then he'll be resurrected and then he can do battle with the dragon having not had to walk all of that way which you know yeah <laughs> it's very practical yeah but it does mean that our central hero has really no effect on the outcome apart from he walks a great distance with a bag of ash yeah That's sort of it really yeah <laughs> because you think the sort of climactic scene would have been the scene where Galen is actually battling the dragon with this magical staff that seems to cut rocks like butter. Mm. But it's not. No. And he doesn't kill the dragon. And it kind of cuts off as well. That scene it gets to a very critical point and then it just cuts to the next scene and you're not even sure what happened, <laughs> whether Galen survived or whether the dragon was killed or not killed. And it was a, kind of a strange third act mm, to me. It is. I mean, that last scene with the battle against the dragon with the wizard kind of standing on this rock and this incredibly horrible, horrendous green screen <laughs> with clouds in the background. It looked like it was an Iron Maiden music video or something. I expected <laughs> Bruce Dickinson to start wailing over it or like a guitar solo to start or something. It was just incredibly cheesy. It's almost like they'd run out of funds and it's like, okay, no more expensive um, <laughs> animatronics or anything. We'll just stick some clouds in the background and it'll, it'll be all right. So, yeah, I think the third act in all of its entirety, whether it's characters, special effects, whatever, was problematic. Yes, I think you're right. <laughs> So our central hero 
He's very pleased with himself. Yes. And I'm not sure where this smugness comes from, why he's so sure, because all that's happened is that after his master's died, he's been packing up his stuff to leave because obviously he doesn't have a job anymore. He can't be a sorcerer's apprentice with no sorcerer. But while he's doing it, the sorcerer's amulet glows and teleports to a couple of places as though it's trying to get his attention. And on that basis, he becomes convinced... For some reason, he's a hero. Yeah. I don't get it. Because the the amulet as well seemed to bestow quite a lot of magic to him. Like, he could do more magic with it. Mm. And I kind of thought they were going in the direction of, like, he relies on it and then it's taken away and then he realises the magic was within him the entire time. And he he could do immense sorcery and and defeat the dragon. But, But that doesn't happen. And mm. all he does is resurrect the wizard and the wizard sacrifices himself and explodes the dragon. And all that Galen had to do was just smash the amulet with a rock. Mm. I I don't see any character <laughs> development here. He seems to be the same, except now he has a girlfriend. Yeah, <laughs> which is odd because it's structurally it's so strange because the pieces are in place for the typical hero's journey Mm -hmm. you have the hubris moment in the second act where he's convinced he can do this he goes with the villagers demands to see the dragon's lair very arrogantly Mm. and uses the only power he seems to reliably have which is telekinesis to cause a landslide that covers up the lair's only entrance and exit and says, job done. Yeah. (laughs) And everybody has a party. But of course, that doesn't work. The dragon's just pissed off and eventually emerges and torches the village and they have to select a new virgin sacrifice. So you have that moment where he realises this isn't going to be as easy as he thought it was. You know, it's it's the Ben Kenobi dies at the end of Act 2. It's Mm. it's that moment when the, the hero is tested and they have to dig deep and learn something. But he doesn't. He just arms himself with a spear that luckily happens to exist because he says to the blacksmith, who's Valerian's dad, have you ever forged a weapon? And he says, why, yes, and I call it Dragon Slayer. And for some reason, I store it in a river. (laughs) Why you would do that? Isn't it going to rust? (laughs) Anyway, so he goes back with a spear and a shield made of dragon scales that was made for him by Valerian, which is very clever, very resourceful of Mm. Valerian, (laughs) avoiding pronouns for the moment, Mm. and fails. So yeah, you think this is going to be the climax of the movie where he does good, but actually he fails again, and then you have this extra third act where the wizard comes back and puts the world to rights. So yeah, the hero learns and achieves nothing. Yeah. Which is interesting. I know, I know. And you completely feel disconnected from the hero in the entire movie and you mm. don't grow to love him. And no. You don't really even root for him because he doesn't really do anything good apart from smash an amulet. So what? Yeah. <laughs> what were they trying to achieve here? I don't know. And for Disney, as this company that revels in teaching life lessons to young children as they grow up and equipping them with the emotional tools that they'll need as adults, learning that you can be an arrogant, smug, know-it-all who can just skate by on happenstance and then watch your dad sort everything out 
is not a great message. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I found this film incredibly bleak and you did say, yeah, this is the dark side of mm. Disney, I guess. <laughs> the dark ages of Disney. But in the first 15 minutes, the wizard, his idol, his teacher is, is killed. Within the next 10 minutes, Hodge, his, I guess, caregiver, mm. is killed. The princess who he admires, I guess, and wants to save is also killed. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of happiness in it, but his character doesn't seem to be that affected by all of this death either. No. He kind of just carries on. Mm. But apart from Galen, I actually found the other characters hugely more interesting. Mm. Valerian, for one. Yes. So Valerian is a boy and she... Oh, okay. (laughs) This is confusing. Yeah. (laughs) He's introduced as a boy. He's the son of one of the villagers. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. she convinces her village people to go to this wizard to try to get him to save their village by defeating the dragon. And she's very confident. She's very much a leader. Mm. She tries to make a difference. She tries to change things. She doesn't just accept, okay... Let's just do the lottery. And she is also in disguise as the sun because the lottery is... (laughs) Just for girls, which is really fair. (laughs) Yeah. So every time the lottery is drawn, a virgin is drawn from the village to sacrifice the dragon. So she escapes that fate by pretending to be a boy. And she does a lot of good in the film. Mm. And when Galen supposedly defeats the dragon, she comes out as a woman. And even though she is the woman, she still retains her sense of confidence and sense of justice and willpower to change. And I think she's a very admirable character. Do you think so? Because I had problems with it, just because it seemed to me almost as though there is a clear delineation between the first half of the movie and then the moment when she puts on a dress and says, I'm a woman. She seems to lose agency for the second half of the movie. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, a little bit, yes. Thinking about it, you're right. She does have the scene where... They're drawing the lottery and the princess has discovered, largely because Galen has told her when he was in the king's dungeon, that the lottery is probably fixed, that rich men make sure that their daughters are never in it and that the king's daughter is certainly never in the lottery. So the princess fixes the lottery so that it's entirely full of her name, that she is definitely going to be the one that's picked Mm. and demands for that decision to stand and Valerian speaks out and says, yes, let it stand, let it stand. So she does speak out still, but to me it just feels as though she changes quite radically in the second half. She puts on a dress and seems to lose all of her gumption. Hmm. She goes from being someone who instigates the entire plot. She's the one that leads this group of people to find Ulrich, the sorcerer. She believes in Ulrich and Galen when nobody else does and defends them. Yes. So she starts out quite well, and then she puts the dress on. She seems to sort of lose all confidence, and after he's failed to defeat the dragon, her next option is, let's just run away. Hmm. So she goes from being the person who is defiantly trying to save her village, even though the king wants to retain the status quo, because that's easier, just to sacrifice young girls and live with it. She wants to change the system, and then in the second half, she just wants to abandon her father and everybody else 
because she fancies Galen for some reason, although I have no reason to believe why she's fancying yeah, Galen, yeah, yeah. really. He gives her no excuse other than he's there and he has a penis. I just, I just don't <laughs> get it. So I think it's complicated with her. Yeah, she does get a bit sulky when, <laughs> when she thinks that Galen has fallen in love with the princess. It's like, you're in love with the princess, aren't you? <laughs> so why? They've never had a meaningful conversation. What the hell are you talking about? Yes. Doesn't seem to love anybody other than himself. It's most peculiar. Mm. I don't understand. <laughs> Going back to the fact that this is a dark Disney film, um, apparently this is the only Disney film that has full frontal male nudity. <laughs> yes. So you see Peter McNichol's junk, apparently, if you look very closely. I have to say I didn't, and I looked really hard. <laughs> no, I didn't either, but I, I read it and I was like, oh, okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Um, it's a scene where he discovers that uh, Valerian is not actually a boy yes. and is very much a woman when she's bathing in the watering hole and he jumps in and he sees everything and mm. we see all of his everything as well. Apparently so, yeah. So <laughs> It's a bit shocking for a Disney film. I mean, it really is quite intense for a Disney film too. You've got that whole scene where obviously you need a scene where you establish the danger of the dragon. So you see one of the virgin sacrifices random character you've never met her before chained up to a post and left there and then the steam rising out of the dragon's lair and then this hand comes up and there is this really intense long scene of this girl screaming and struggling to get her hands out of these manacles that she's been fastened into mm. blood streaming down her wrists as she tries yes. to break her <laughs> thumbs to get them out and running around and you think, this is a Disney movie? <laughs> it's pretty terrifying. And a lot of death. Mm. Just a lot of characters just dying mm. all the time. Yes. And you think, oh, the princess, surely he will save the princess. But no. No. She's, she's just being gnawed by these like little puppy dragons in her <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite yes. a morbid looking scene It is, yes, she gets her foot gnawed off Which was a part that was actually cut out on the UK DVD oh. um, Still isn't available in this country unless you watch this movie on Disney Live So, yeah, it's pretty grim It is And even, did you notice the Emperor from Return of the Jedi is in there as well And he gets burnt to a cinder He's the religious leader Oh, yes Yeah, he's the religious leader who thinks that if he just goes down to the mouth of the dragon's lair and prays a bit that everything will be okay <laughs> and the dragon just comes up and burns him to a cinder and you get to see this blackened figure with fire around him collapsing. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrifying for kids, surely. Yeah. I mean, even the death of Tyrion, who is a, an evil character. He's he's portrayed as an evil character. He's like the evil henchman from Ladyhawk or something. Mm. Um, even his death is pretty grisly. Yeah. So he has a, a bit of a face-off with Galen, and Galen's using his like magical spear. Mm. Tyrion is kind of just standing behind this big wooden post, 
And Galen does a, a quite an evil move and, and stabs through the post into Tyrion. And it's not the sort of move a, a hero would do to kill a villain as well. It, it's, it's quite underhand, isn't it? Yeah. yeah it's not honourable. No, no, not at all. It's quite shocking. So yeah, it's a dark movie. A lot of it's shot on location. So, I mean, it has that great thing that we always talk about, which is, apart from the finale, which sticks up like a sore thumb, real locations in North Wales and in Scotland, uh, the Isle of Skye. Yeah, so you've got all these really lush landscapes, gritty, muddy, realistic costume design as well, Mm -hmm. even. So the costumes they're wearing apparently only had colours that were made out of vegetable dyes that they would have had at the time. So it's fairly muted colours apart from the king. Yes, it's a lot of attention to detail that makes it sort of drab and lived in and quite a believable depiction of the 6th century. But does this make for a glorious escapist piece of entertainment for families? (laughs) No, it's an odd one. Yeah, that's very true. I love the locations. Mm. Uh, I've said it before, with fantasy films from the 80s, just, oh, incredible use of locations that look real they look like you could reach out and just touch the grass Mm. you have this immense sense of journey as well like they're actually going somewhere different Uh, it's not just another green screen cgi mess of Mm. landscapes that are completely impossible and it looks beautiful i mean the cinematography is great. I mean, from the very beginning with the warm, candlelit, earthly tones of Cragonmore, the wizard's castle, and all the location shooting and the dragon's lair stuff where it really does look as though they've descended into the bowels of hell and it's all red and steamy. I mean, it's a beautiful looking film. Mm. Cinematography was by a British cinematographer called Derek Van Lint, who worked on Alien as well. So, wow. Pretty amazing guy. Yeah, I mean, it looked great. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what virginal piece of trivia do you have to sacrifice at the lair of Vermithrax today? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, apparently, I'm, I'm assuming this is Latin, but Vermithrax pejorative roughly translates as the worm of Thrace... Which makes things worse. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) What's Thrace, though? (laughs) (laughs) This could all be completely false. But uh, apparently that's what it translates to. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because pejorative has entered the English language to mean a, a term that's offensive. So it's sort of weird that half of his name is a word we use every day and it's just this adjective and it's yeah. just hanging there. <laughs> Very odd. There we go. Yeah, that's a random trivia. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Shall we talk about the special effects? Because I I feel like the special effects of this film were definitely a standout. They are, and quite groundbreaking. So this is 80s, so pre-CGI, so you have to try and figure out how to bring a dragon to life with the technology of the time. And they went for two different routes. One was to create full-scale pieces. They couldn't create a full-scale 
dragon that would work practically on set in, uh-huh. in the same way that Stan Winston did for the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park 12 years later. Right. But they did pieces, so you have a hand and you have a tail and you have the head, which you often have sort of raising up in front of the camera or behind characters and it's obscured. So that works really well. And then there is all of the animated work. But instead of the Ray Harryhausen stop motion approach to the animation for the models, they used a new approach that was pioneered by Phil Tippett called Go Motion, which I'm not sure I fully understand. But from what I read, essentially the puppets have got stepper motors in them. And so Phil Tippett, the animator, will move the character bit by bit as he would normally. But instead of taking a frame of film, which would result in lots and lots and lots of still perfectly focused frames, which give this sort of stroboscopic effect if characters move Mm. too quickly in a frame and it looks fake and it looks small. Instead of that, you animate the character and these stepper motors record all of the positions that the puppet's in. And then when you take the shot, it actually moves the puppet so that you get motion blur and you get more of a sense of scale because they're sort of exposing the frames and they're getting that motion blur that makes it look realistic. Mm. And there are several shots in this movie that really blew me away. Me too. Where you just think, this was made in 1981. Like the first full (laughs) reveal of Vermithrax pejorative towering up in front of Galen and the fluidity of the motion and the scale of it and the way that it's lit and the way it's incorporated into the shot. Yeah. You just look at it and think, holy crap. (laughs) Yeah. It's amazing. It's very impressive. It's worthwhile reveal because they tease the dragon all the way up Mm. until that that point. You see a claw here, a a wing here, a tail here. Mm. I can just imagine like five guys just rolling a a dragon tail on wheels (laughs) (laughs) just out of frame but yeah i i agree there's one scene with the dragon where it's crawling through the the lair Mm. and it looks so real Mm. it's incredible the movements are just so precise and not stop motion looking yeah yeah incredible you do you get the full motion that was always the problem with stop motion that it is stopped that it is perfectly in focus so whereas a camera every time it records a frame the shutter is open for a certain period of time and if an object moves during that period of time then it blurs and we're all used to seeing that in movies we're used to seeing motion blur yes that's why when you suddenly up the frame rate to 50 frames or whatever and it looks perfectly in focus like video like a soap where everybody hates it because it just doesn't look like a movie anymore. It looks too squeaky clean and video-ish and... (coughs) The Hobbit. (coughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) Which is why you have things like Tom Cruise doing a Twitter campaign saying, turn this setting off on your television because it's ruining (laughs) Mission Impossible movies. Yes. But yeah, it's just for 1981 for Phil Tippett to solve this problem by creating these puppets that would actually move while the shutter is open so that you would get the motion blur. He'd started it on the Tauntauns in The Empire Strikes Back, I think, but this was the film where they really went to town and used it. And it just looks incredible for those few shots. And I think that's the reason why people remember this movie is everybody loves Vermithrax pejorative. He's remembered as the first great depiction of a dragon on the big screen. And that's why he's name dropped in Game of Thrones. 
I don't know if you know this. I have heard about this. Yeah, he's mentioned in season one, episode four by Viserys as he recalls the names of the Targaryen dragons and Vermithrax is in that list. Yes. Also a big favourite of Guillermo del Toro, who has a connection to the director. Oh. Matthew Robbins was asked by the Sundance Institute to mentor emerging writers, and he was sent to Mexico where he met a 29-year-old with uh, milk bottle glasses who was full of enthusiasm and loved Matthew Robbins' movie. And they fell in love, the two of them. It was, of course, Guillermo del Toro, and the two of them have gone on to collaborate on several films. Mimic, uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and Crimson's Peak were co-written by Matthew Robbins. Wow, 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 wow. So the dragon's the best bit, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) The dragon is the best part of this movie. I mean, uh, it's it's also great that the dragon has a name mm. as well. Even though he doesn't talk like smog or anything, he has a name and he is a character. Yeah. And he is a that sort of dark force that is behind the entire film. But uh, I don't know. I, I felt like that climactic scene, again, going back to that third act, just wasn't fulfilling mm. at all. It didn't feel like a battle. It just felt like... The wizard blows up (laughs) in the dragon's claws and we are left with a dragon carcass that looks like it's made in the Play-Doh. Yeah, it's such an undignified (laughs) end for Vermithrax pejorative, who (laughs) is such, as you say, a looming figure of threat in the background of the whole movie and such an effective menace and all of the scenes where you're teasing him are so effectively done i love the camera work in that scene with the first virgin sacrifice because it does that thing that i love in special effects shots where the special effect isn't the focus of the shot there's this shot where the young girl is trying desperately to get away and the camera is pushing in on her as though it's following her and she's the subject of the shot and this tail just slides through it as the camera is moving forward So it's like, oh, this shot accidentally has the dragon in it. It's that kind of stuff that really sells this menace off screen. And he is a terrifying presence. Mm. And then he just gets blown up and then (laughs) the king (laughs) does this ceremonial thing where he just (laughs) walks up to the (laughs) smouldering carcass and prods it with a sword and everyone says, hail King Cassiodorus who slayed the dragon. And you think he's done bugger all. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. I know, I know, I know. Shall we talk about another thing that I feel undermines this movie? Yes, let's do that. <laughs> Alex North's score. Ah. So he is a very famous composer. He did things like A Streetcar Named Desire and Spartacus with Kubrick. He's been showered with awards and praise. And his music is very challenging, in this film, it's not your typical stirring romantic era adventure score. It's this weird, serial, discordant, experimental stuff. And I don't know, I feel as though it's one of these things where I feel as though I should intellectually admire it because, oh, look at it, so daring and look at this, these clusters and he's <laughs> getting them to play instruments in fascinating new ways and all this kind of thing. But 
at a base level, I just can't get away from the fact that I fucking hate it <laughs> because it's cacophonous, formless noise that seems to be intruding on every scene and robbing it of any kind of emotion or narrative drive or atmosphere. I mean, there's one scene where it's working, and that's the dragon's lair, where it is properly quite terrifying. But even then... Well, I kind of approach the music almost like golden age of Hollywood music. Right. Where the score is very upfront mm. in the whole cinematic experience. You take a lot of Alfred Hitchcock movies and uh, Bernard Herrmann scores. It's right there. It's loud. It's abrasive. It's in your face. Mm. And I kind of felt like this film was the same with the score. It was really in your face. Admittedly, a lot of the scenes were like, could they just turn it down just like maybe... 5 dB, it's just too much. But I re- <laughs> yeah. I actually really liked how jarring the music was. Like a lot of it was very atonal, as you mentioned, serial, lots of clusters, a lot of very clashing notes, great textural builds. Every single instrument under the sun used in the score as well. You've got xylophones, you've got full orchestras, you've got bells, you've got all sorts of different instruments. So I felt I did actually like the score, but I felt like maybe they should have sat down with Alex North and said, maybe you should just tone it down just a little bit. Mm. (laughs) Because, yeah, like you said, it was a little bit too much. And a lot of scenes where I did feel that it didn't need score at all. And it was just constant. 90% of the film was score. Mm. And it was relentless. Yes, that's a good word. (laughs) There was no breathing room. It was just constant, constant, constant. So I kind of half agree with you, but I really like atonal scores. (laughs) Do you? Yes, I do. Yes. I do sometimes when it works, you know, something like Under the Skin, for example. still haven't seen that. (laughs) You still haven't seen (laughs) it. It's a really experimental score again, and melodic is not a word you would use, but it works so well in setting the mood and the atmosphere of that movie and and terrifying you and making you unsettled. And yes. So I, I like it in that sort of context, but when it comes to your adventuresome, exciting family movie uh-huh. I just thought this is so alienating this sound it is. I mean it's it great is. for creating another world and another time and a different sense of place and you know medieval music might have sounded like this because who knows it was so far back that kind of thing yeah I get that but when it's undermining the drama I mean it's just so busy mm. like the clamorous rhythmic clanging that's leading up to Galen picking up the amulet at the beginning you think, okay, this is important for some reason, but I want something that's a little bit more subtle on the soundtrack saying, yeah. ooh, you know, this might mean something, not sure what, but it's sort of interesting. But sort of clang, clang, bang, wallop, <laughs> big descending <laughs> clusters of chords. And the scene where Hodge dies, for example, it's these busy, complex, interlocking harmonic string lines It just seems a little bit too much for this character that, that, I mean, I didn't get the sense that Galen and Hodge had a great relationship anyway. He didn't have a lot of patience for this young upstart. So I just didn't get where all this really loud, busy music was coming from. And it just tore me out of the movie Mm. 90% of the time. I think I do agree in terms of the fact that 
the film already was really bleak. Yeah. So having kind of atonal, disjointed, not very relatable emotionally music made it even more bleak. Yes. So yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it didn't really connect with anyone. And there was no sense of, oh, there's a glimmer of hope because everything was just atonal, mm. brah, 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 kind of. <laughs> Not harmonious in its sense of emotion. And so you felt like that the entire film. And then it ended and you didn't feel, it didn't build to a point. It was yeah. just... There's no heroic... Triumphant. Resolution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's nothing like that. It just sort of climax in another cacophony and then stops. <laughs> and you think, okay, but maybe that suits the film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm having the same impression of the music that you and Serge had in the last episode that we did for Ravenous, mm. where... The music by itself is actually really good, but in Ravenous, I didn't think it worked. And similar to this, you don't think it works in this film, but by itself, I think the music's actually pretty good. Well, it was Oscar nominated, so it's... Was it? Yeah, it's me just intellectually not getting it. Or maybe intellectually I get it, but I'm just not able to appreciate it as music. It's actually leftovers. So Alex North had worked with Kubrick, as we said, on Spartacus, and he had written music for 2001. And shame on you, Kubrick. You were a great man, but you didn't tell Alex North that his music had been replaced with needle drops from classical scores and he didn't find that out until he sat in the premiere and watched the movie and none of his music was in it which I think was a shitty thing to do (laughs) the sort of atonal weird stuff is all from the dawn of man sequence ah well (laughs) it would definitely suit that (laughs) it would yeah it's ideal for that sort of tribal weird otherworldly but for the 6th century magical fantasy (laughs) not so much and the lovely sprightly waltz that plays over the end credits that was supposed to be the spaceship docking sequence that ended up being scored with the blue danube yes yeah so it's rejected 2001 music jammed on here (laughs) and it was nominated for an oscar but didn't win because Chariots of Fire won instead. Oh, right. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I still actually enjoyed the music. I I think I'm also comparing it to uh, Marvel movies. Uh, Mm. The fact that music and Marvel movies could be there, could not be there, doesn't make a real difference. (laughs) It's too subtle and it's too underscoring. Mm. For me, it's actually quite a nice breath of fresh air to hear a score that's really in your face and you can't ignore it. It's just there and you just have to take it in. Mm. And it was kind of nice to hear a score like that again because it it was such an integral part of how the film was constructed. Mm. And I do find that there were a few scenes that were pretty boring (laughs) if they didn't have that score. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still not convinced. (laughs) I think the boring scenes and with irritating music was sort of what I took away from it. (laughs) Oh, Oh, dear. Agree to disagree. Yeah. (laughs) Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Moobly Awards. 
Well, listeners, I'm sure you are all burning in your seats on hot embers in anticipation for the Moobly Awards, where we nominate a number of our favourite things in a bunch of completely useless categories. Conrad, always start with favourite quote. What was yours? Mine was actually something that Galen said, surprisingly, which was, you can't make a shameful peace with dragons. And I thought that that was... Probably the best summation of the only big theme of the film is that you can't just do a deal with the devil <laughs> and live with it. Yes. You really do have to confront them and defeat them, which mm. I think is a good message. Yeah, it really is. How about you? Uh, mine's <laughs> a lot more <laughs> nonsense, really. So Hodge is the sort of caregiver of Galen and they've just started their journey towards the dragon and Hodge gets shot with an arrow by Tyrion (laughs) for quite an unknown reason. I'm not entirely sure why that happened. Anyway, and Hodge says, can you hear me? You know, somebody shot me, but I can still talk. (laughs) it's, It's almost like the film is self-aware that there's always a scene in films like this where someone gets is dying but is still able to spout a whole bunch of very crucial information <laughs> while they're also dying <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which of course he does he hands over the ashes and says you have to put this in a lake of fire yes yes <laughs> <laughs> All right, next category, most 80s moment. Uh, anything very 80s for you, Conrad? Well, I may be impinging on the costume category, but I actually thought Peter McNichol's 80s perm stroke afro was ah. possibly the most 80s thing in this yes. movie. Very much like William Cat or Leo Sayer, just this, this bauble of tight blonde curls <laughs> I just cannot see somebody having in 6th century Europe but there we go <laughs> I know how about you well uh, I just <laughs> thought the green screen in that third act just pff, so mm. 80s and uh, like I said uh, 80s heavy metal music video to a T they just <laughs> just need some Iron Maiden over it and it would be perfect <laughs> <laughs> It was inspired by the climax of A Sorcerer's Apprentice. Oh. Um, you know, s- standing on a mountain top with the clouds, casting spells. That's all they were going for. Mm. Don't think they quite managed it. No, not, not <laughs> one iota. <laughs> what about costume? I was talking about hair a moment ago. Did you have a favourite bit of costume or hair in this movie? Oh, I just had a bit of costume that didn't... Re- <sighs> didn't really make any sense so the king's crown is kind of octagonal in shape and surely that is the most uncomfortable crown to wear surely (laughs) yeah i had that too it was his combination of a beard with no mustache so he's got a chin strap facial Uh hair arrangement and appears to be wearing a chunky hexagonal cake tin is what i wrote down Perfect description. So uncomfortable. Yeah. And splendid purple socks at one point. I oh, noticed. yeah. I did notice that. Very royal, I hear. Very royal, yes. My, my. Yes, he did look ridiculous, didn't he? Bless him. So, this is a fantasy film, and fantasy films are a little bit cliched. Anything stick out to you? 
Well, there are a number of things I spotted. There are the shooting stars over the castle during Ulrich's funeral pyre, not to mention oodles of blue lightning. But I think probably my favourite fantasy cliché in this movie is that the climactic moment of transition happens during an eclipse. And this is something that we've seen in Lady Hawk, that we've seen in The Dark Crystal, that an eclipse and the strange twilight time is when something magical can happen. Yes, seems a bit overused, but (laughs) that was my pick for cliché. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit coincidental. I mean, eclipses don't happen that often. (laughs) No. <laughs> what are the chances? <laughs> it doesn't seem to be all that important either. It just sort of happens. I know. I know. I didn't really understand the significance. Uh, in terms of cliches for me, coloured fire is a thing that you always see in fantasy oh, films. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there's, there's many scenes in this film where the fire is green. Green fire. Mm. Uh, but often mm. you'll see blue fire, purple fire. Fantasy with their <laughs> coloured fire. Yes, I don't know. It's Ulrich, isn't it? When he goes up on the funeral pyre, he's green. I don't know whether he's full of copper filings or something. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Next category, favourite scene. Well, I think it has to be Galen's face-to-face encounter with Vermithrax, even though it doesn't go anywhere and it isn't the climax of the movie. I think it is a fantastic scene and I think it really showcases that amazing effects work by Phil Tippett and his crew. Really well constructed, it's amazingly lit, the special effects are integrated into the shots, it's exciting, it has dramatic peaks and troughs. I loved it, I thought it was great. What about you? I had exactly the same scene. Uh, I love mm. that shot with Vermithrax. His wings are outstretched and he does this incredible burst of flame that comes from his mouth. I heard they use two like military flamethrowers to get that effect. <laughs> and it yes. looks incredible. It was, it was almost majestic in how it was shot. It was, yeah, mm. amazing. Really good scene. Love that scene. And I have a feeling if we move on to favourite effect, that Vermithrax may feature prominently here too. I mean, he's certainly my favourite effect, and that shot you mentioned is my favourite effect in the whole Uh, movie. uh Yeah, I mean, I would say the dragon takes the cake in terms of of the film. Uh, But I did want to mention one very short scene. I think Vermithrax is re-emerging from his, his buried lair, and there's a shot of some rocks and then they just start steaming and it looks Mm. really good it doesn't look like it's (laughs) steam coming from around the rocks it looks like the the rocks themselves are actually emitting steam and Mm. whether those rocks are made of sponge or something i'm not sure but uh, it was a very effective (laughs) effect yes really good stuff there's lots of really good practical stuff in this movie yeah Lots of destruction, actually. Mm. <laughs> Lots of rocks and yes. walls crumbling and the earth shattering, that sort of thing. <laughs> and there's some great animation effects too. One particular thing I quite liked was that when his spear glows and things like this, they animated lens flares yeah, onto the glowing I effect. I, I noticed that. It's really good that you get these anamorphic blue lens flares on all of the animated. And that's, yeah, I just love the attention to detail on stuff like that. Yeah. 
Uh, speaking of attention to detail, how about sound effects? Any detailed sound effects you liked? <laughs> there was one that I hated. Oh, yes. <laughs> there is this one sound effect that is in so many science fiction and action movies, and it's this sort of... Um, maybe if I just play it... I just hear that bloody noise everywhere. I was watching the first Avengers movie and it's even in that. Wow. And I'm so sick of it. It's such a cheesy, synthesized, overused stock sound effect for fires being lit, swords being swooshed, Iron Man firing up his boots. You know, <laughs> it's just, ugh. Oh, I get so irritated by hearing it. Yes, it's my red-tailed hawk. I, I uh, notice it every time right. and I despise it. How about you? <laughs> uh, well, I, I just wanted to quickly mention when Vermithrax first appears, there's actually a what sounds like a panther sound. And I just thought, oh. random panther. Um, but <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but um, my <laughs> my actual favourite sound effect of, of the film was, yeah, when, when they start heating the sp- the spear. So Galen recites this incantation and the spear starts heating up, glowing hot red. Mm. And it makes this really interesting metallic, almost industrial metallic vibrating sound. I have no idea what that mm. is, but it sounds mm. cool. And uh, I, it was unexpected. So I, I really like that. Yeah, it gives you this real sense that this spear is important, that it is the dragon slayer and it's going to be decisive in delivering the final mortal blow to Vermithrax and it does nothing. Does nothing. <laughs> cool spear though. It's a very cool spear and surprisingly unrusty given its storage conditions. Oh yeah. <laughs> Okay, so how about funny scene? Was there a scene in this that made you laugh, intentionally or otherwise? Okay, so a scene for me that was really funny, and I'm not entirely sure why it was funny, but so there's the scene where the king has sacrificed his daughter to the dragon, mm. and the priest, I think, is doing the final rites, and then suddenly there's a puff of smoke, and Galen appears, and the priest exclaims, "No more smoke! I beg you!" <laughs> and because that, I think that's the third time that a wizard has appeared in a puff of smoke. And I, it was it was another kind of almost self-aware scene where the movie kind of pokes yeah. fun of itself. It's like, "Oh, here's another puff of smoke," <laughs> and the character just goes, "Just stop it! <laughs> just stop it!" <laughs> Yeah, that was a good one. And actually, mine is a similar one. It's the very first time that the smoke happens, but it wasn't the smoke that made me laugh with Ulrich's appearance. It was Galen's percussion recital oh, yes. before <laughs> Ulrich appears. And it's really well recorded because it's just these very unimpressive percussive instruments in a really dry setting that lends yeah. them no body and <laughs> reverberation at all. And it's just there tapping these animal hides and rumbling this thunder sheet and then Ulrich does his his smoky appearance. It's so naff and <laughs> underwhelming and he's clearly very self-conscious and embarrassed while he's doing it. So I think it's intentionally funny and I did laugh an awful lot at that yeah. scene. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our Mooblies.
welcome back listeners, it's time for the final verdict. Should this film be freed from its lair to burn village people as it pleases? Or should it be buried alive, stabbed with a magical lance, struck by lightning, and become a forgotten myth in the annals of the Oubliette? Conrad, you'd seen this before. What did you think about Dragon Slayer? Yes, I had seen it before in childhood, and I remember not being enthralled by it as a child. And I think that probably explains why it bombed at the box office and didn't go on to become a fondly remembered Disney classic because it really isn't a crowd pleaser. As an adult looking back at it and obviously recognising that there has been a cult that's grown up around it, Guillermo del Toro loves it, it's referenced in Game of Thrones, George R. R. Martin loves this dragon and thinks it's the best dragon ever. But still, as a film, I don't think it really works. It's very oddly structured. It seems to have three acts with a third act that is not what you expect at all, which I don't mind. I don't mind things bucking trends, but it doesn't actually go anywhere. He fails again, and then somebody else comes back and fixes it. And he have a central character that I just never warmed to. And I don't even think the writing made any attempt, so I don't necessarily think it's Peter McNichol. I just don't think there's anything there for you to hang on to in this character. He's arrogant. He fails twice. He doesn't seem interested in anybody other than himself. And I have no idea why Valerian falls in love with him. I certainly wouldn't. And so there just aren't any characters for you to cling on to. I think Valerian's a lovely character, but I'm not sure whether that really follows all the way through the movie. I think she puts a dress on and just loses all agency and all of her courage. Although the film looks beautiful, it's got great location photography, it's got wonderful cinematography, it's very well directed by Matthew Robbins, and it has some astonishing groundbreaking special effects work, Mm. which I think everybody should see. You should watch the dragon's lair sequence from this movie i really don't think i could recommend the movie as a whole as a a film to be resurrected from the oubliette i think it it kind of deserves to be there but that's just me what do you think well i mean i do have my reservations for this film the lead character is awful yes and i've said it already the third act is just a mess Mm. but I love how it's shot I love the scenery I love the costumes I love the dragon vermithrax pejorative is just such an incredible menace throughout the film I don't know I think it is actually a decent fantasy film and I think in terms of the fantasy genre I think it's definitely a milestone Mm. i think people should watch this movie more um i i think this film it is bleak it's not your happy cheerful family film where everyone lives in the end and all is well like i don't think it has a very happy ending to be honest i i don't know (laughs) i think it's still a, a a decent fantasy film and i would recommend it i would Set it free. We know what this means. Yes. It's time for... The Coin of Fate. I'm hoping that I do better with the Coin of Fate this time because I've lost every single time it's been tossed. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe maybe you should call it this time. 
Okay. I call in the honour of the dragon Tails. So here we go. (sighs) What is it? It's Tails. (laughs) Yes. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) For the first time, the coin of fate smiles upon me. (laughs) Damn. (laughs) Time to queue up the landslide and the spear. Thor, Dragon Slayer, <laughs> and toss it back into the oubliette. Goodbye. So sad. Aww. Thanks to Chad Rommel for suggesting Dragon Slayer. It was a great choice. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yes, thanks, Chad. Sorry I didn't enjoy it, but um, <laughs> <laughs> them's the breaks. <laughs> So what are we doing next episode? Well, for the next episode, we are revisiting the director Joe Dante. Oh, of The Hole. Of The Hole. Another one of his films that failed to light up the box office. It's the 1987 science fiction comedy film... Inner Space. Ah, never seen it. See, this is one that I have seen many, many, many times. So very much looking forward to hearing what your thoughts will be on it. It stars Dennis Quaid, Martin Short, Meg Ryan and Kevin McCarthy. And it's Ah. scored by none other than Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, your favourite. My favourite film score artist. So we're, we're in for a treat, no matter how it turns out. So... Yes. Can't wait. So let us know your thoughts on our verdict on Dragon Slayer and tell us what you think of Inner Space as well. Tell us what we're in for via our socials. We are Movie Oubliette pretty much everywhere on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can contact us via movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And please, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast platform you are using. I actually heard that iTunes is no longer continuing. So uh, make sure Apple Podcasts, please. Mm, yes, apparently it's it's a relic of the past. I hate iTunes, so I am... <laughs> <laughs> We're also on Spotify, Stitcher and Podbean if you want to check us out. Please do. Thanks for joining us this episode. Bye for now. Bye-bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and don't the movie Other entrances? No, one's enough.